The Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussions of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Zoe. And I'm Tom. Today, we focus on what for many is a quintessential part of The Hague, City of Peace and Justice. And I'm referring, of course, to the International Criminal Court or the ICC for short. And more specifically, we look at how the ICC is tackling the difficult and sensitive issue of gender crimes. Uh, Gender and inequality associated with gender has been gaining increased interest in recent years, with examples such as the Me Too movement. Or even Turkey's recent decision to pull out of the Istanbul Convention because of the way in which this treaty defines gender. Now, all of us are familiar, of course, with the term, but whether you associate gender with your biological sex or as an identity that is created by the society in which you live may depend on where and how you were brought up. And attitudes towards gender and gender-based crime affect the manner in which justice is served. It has an effect on all aspects of the justice process. And so today we are thrilled to welcome Alex Vulleman from the Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice on the show. Uh, welcome, Alex. It's a, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Welcome, Alex. Now, you are um, a senior advocacy advisor for gender justice and work directly with the International Criminal Court. This sounds very interesting and important, but is perhaps a little far removed from many people's everyday lives. So perhaps we could just start with a question about gender justice and how exactly, how does it relate to sexual and gender crimes? Because my understanding is that these two are viewed separately. Yes, there was well, a great question to start with. So thank you very much. So basically gender justice, what it means is that it is trying to get equality and equity between men and women and all genders. And working towards gender justice really means looking at all the factors that hinder that equality between the genders and trying to address those so that there is more equality, so that there is more equity. So when we're talking about crimes, when we're talking about the realm of accountability of justice, specifically when it comes to sexual and gender-based crimes, you see that it is a category where unfortunately women are clearly more affected, especially when you look at sexual violence in any context, because that is perpetrated against women. Not to say that it's not perpetrated against men and boys, as they are affected by these hideous crimes as well. And so to to answer your question, sexual violence and gender-based violence are indeed not the same. Sexual violence is often also gender-based violence, but gender-based violence does not have to be uh, sexual violence. And uh, perhaps to make it a little bit more clear, gender-based violence are a category of crimes perpetrated against a particular gender because that person is part of that gender. 
if that makes it a little bit clearer. I think so. I just, as you were talking, it just occurred to me this notion of when you spoke about gender equality of different groups, are we talking here just about male and female? Or because I would imagine gender-based crimes that might also cover other groups like transsexuals. Very much so indeed. Okay, so we're looking here at the multi-dimensional understanding of gender. Is is that right? That is absolutely correct. As you mentioned in the introduction, um, the definition of gender um, and gender sometimes controversy, but the way we understand it and the International Criminal Court understand it to some extent as well, is that it looks further than the binary norm of, of the biological sex of women and men. It looks very much at the cultural identity that a person has uh, within the context of their, of their lives, really. And so that it can encompass really all genders. Perhaps for our listeners, we'll to further clarify the differences. Could you give us some concrete examples of, of what this might look like? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're talking about sexual violence, it really encompasses any crimes that affects or violates really the sexual integrity or autonomy of a person. So that can be anything from rape, which is a sexual crime that is unfortunately well known, but all the way to sexual harassment uh, and everything in between. So when you look at an example of gender-based violence, so not only sexual violence, but gender-based violence, recently prosecuted at the International Criminal Court is gender-based persecution. So in In this particular ICC case, we saw that prosecutors brought forward charges where women in Timbuktu, in Mali, were persecuted, particularly targeted, because they were women. And what happened there is that the perpetrators of those crimes persecuted those women because they felt that those women were not conducting themselves in such a manner or dressing in such a manner that they felt were becoming on a woman. And so that is, I hope, a, a very concrete example of what gender-based violence uh, might look like. That wasn't specifically sexual violence, but they yeah. were persecuted in other ways because of their gender. It, exactly. And also, well, not only because of their gender, it seems it's because of ideas about how you should behave if you belong to a certain gender. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Okay, so the, the fact that the ICC has recognized that sexual and gender crimes have traditionally been underreported and are difficult to prosecute, if you look at some of past reports, it seems that this has been acknowledged now for a little while. Mm -hmm. But what is it about these particular types of crimes that makes them, well, why are they underreported and why are they so difficult to prosecute? Yeah, it's a very good question. Again, they are indeed more difficult to uh, investigate. They are more difficult to prosecute. And there's a very long list, unfortunately, of why that is. Um, on that list are numerous examples. But one to start with is that these type of crimes are usually sort of misunderstood, miscategorized. It is a very sensitive, difficult topic to address as well, and therefore misunderstood. And what I mean by that is that there are so many types of crimes of sexual violence, but also of gender violence. Uh, violence that people just don't understand, don't see necessarily, and thus don't identify. On top of that as well, survivors or victims of sexual or gender-based violence are particularly vulnerable, and thus you need a system in place to, for example, identify and interview victims in, in a safe manner. That is a process that can be a bit more lengthy, you need more training, it can be a little bit more cumbersome, that's a bit more expensive, and th there are issues with that as well. 
another very big issue is stigma. Victims, uh, survivors might not want to come forward, might not want to be interviewed because uh, of all the stigma that they face because of what has happened to them. So that 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 makes it also very difficult for prosecutors sometimes to go in and 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 find really uh, survivors. Yeah, one thing that I think is very interesting is you mentioned about three different reasons why why these are difficult to prosecute or to chase. So the the stigma, the experience from certain interviewers to to get the complete story. And lastly, the the misidentification or miscategorization of these crimes. So how or why are these these crimes so miscategorized or, or misidentified? Well, that's a very good question because sexual violence in particular, but also gender-based violence, is a topic that goes towards sexuality. And that's a very difficult topic uh, for everyone, really, to, to address, to use the terminology, if you will. It's a bit uncomfortable. And so that is something that, uh, to oversimplify it perhaps, but that you really see come into uh, the discourse of international justice as well. It's uh, perhaps uncomfortable in a courtroom to discuss, to use the terminology associated with sexual violence. And sometimes you do see, well, that's maybe focused then on other types of, of crimes or perhaps on other types of victims or witnesses, because those are a bit easier topics to address. We mentioned it before, just the, so sometimes it might be a little bit easier to, well, focus the limited resources that you might have as an investigator or prosecutor on something else. If, if, if I may give you uh, yet another example, something that we've seen in the context of the ICC as well is the miscategorization we felt as well because based on what survivors have told us of a particular form of sexual violence that was perpetrated against men the intention of that sexual violence i won't delve into details but of that sexual violence was to uh, drag down those men to to, to put them on in, on a different standing, if you will, and really affect their sexuality. But to them, it very much felt like sexual violence because it affected their sexual reproductive organs. But then that was charged as such by the prosecution. But then the judges recategorized those crimes because they felt like, no, the intention of the perpetrators was more culturally based than sexually based, if you will. But then what you do end up with then is a discussion within the courtroom that should really be to me at least, to, to, to have that sense of justice for survivors, a discussion where what has happened, what they lived through is being discussed, but that wasn't the case because it was labeled as a crime based on culture and not a crime based on sexuality, if you will, but affecting very deeply their sense of sexuality. So do you see what I mean? This, is a, this, this can be a real issue. Maybe a practical question to help clarify that as well. So so how big of a difference is it if something is prosecuted as a cultural crime or as a sexual crime? Is there an, an immense difference? Yeah, surely they're very close or they're very interrelated. They're very interrelated, but it, it, it goes really to the heart of the issue, which is what is the lived experience of the survivor? Because if you go into a situation where crimes have happened, you need to, to, to ask yourself then, then what, what does justice look like? For whom are we doing this? For whom does it need to be just? To who, For whom are we trying to get accountability, really? Uh, for us, at least, it is for the survivors. It is for the affected communities. And then if, if you have a process where they don't see what they lived through and, and you only address a really small part of it, then it is not complete justice. 
just to clarify, so as you said, the court suggested that there was a cultural issue, but does it matter finally how exactly it is categorized if justice is forthcoming? Is that not helpful for the for the survivor? Or only very partially, really. And again, it's 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 it depends a little bit on what angle you take, because there is a question that comes up oftentimes, like, well, as long as the perpetrators are behind bars, right? But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that for the healing process, if you will, of survivors, because then, yes, perpetrators are behind bars, but again, a, a very large part of the feeling of justice is seeing everything that you have lived through being addressed uh, and seeing the perpetrators who have done that to you being punished also for the, the, the whole breadth of crimes that have been perpetrated against you. So th- that is a very important point that we try to make. Do you find that this is the problem, that that often the sexual or gender-based aspect of a crime will be potentially left out or recategorized as as something else and and if so then why i mean why would a prosecutor decide to reclassify something as cultural rather than sexual it wasn't the prosecutor herself it was it was the judges but the, there was in one case so what we saw early in the early days of the international criminal court is that indeed the prosecutor made prioritization choices because with the idea of well we're looking because the icc is looking at mass atrocity crimes it's it's in enormous crimes on enormous scale. You can never, unfortunately, hold accountable every single perpetrator. So you need to make choices. Who are you going against? Who are you going to target in the prosecution? But also for what crimes? And in the early days, we saw that there was a prioritization of certain categories of crimes just to make sure that there was some measure of accountability that some perpetrators were brought to justice. And so there, also when you look at the, again, mass scale if you, when you look at the capacity of the International Criminal Court, of the investigation mm. and prosecutor, it isn't that great, unfortunately. So choices have to be made. What we're seeing now, little by little, and thanks to the work of the current prosecutor, is that there is better understanding, better prioritization, better streamlining, if you will, and thus integration of in all the steps that the investigators and prosecutors take to integrate a dimension of looking at sexual and gender-based crimes. I, I think it's a nice transition into a next question because that was also about prioritization. The ICC tried to address this by, amongst yep. other things, uh, creating a dedicated gender and children's unit, perhaps to, yep, to that's correct. increase that experience and a, a, a special gender advisor to the prosecutor. So do you see this as a positive? And perhaps what are some of the obstacles that this initiative has experienced thus far? It is uh, it is very much a positive, and the current prosecutor has made really great strides forward in tackling the issue of SGBV, including the, the creation of the measures that, that you mentioned. Um, so this has had a very important impact uh, on how the ICC as a whole deals with SGBV, which in turn is an important impact on how SGBV, sexual and gender-based violence, is dealt with in international criminal law. And that in turn has a very important dynamic, if you will, with how Uh, sexual violence is viewed at the national level and how the national level can inform how the ICC is is dealing with this issue. Uh, This has really gone hand in hand with the development on the international policy sphere where sexual violence gender-based violence to an extent as well, has gained a real attention also, almost in the mainstream policy discussions in the last 
I would say six, seven years. But but coming back to your question on challenges, there's really quite quite a few still. As I mentioned before, sexual violence is misunderstood. Still, it's an uncomfortable topic to to discuss, and it's 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 really quick to assume what sexual violence might mean and how survivors live through it. So uh, yeah, the the mischaracterization, the misunderstanding is, uh, I feel, one of the main challenges to tackle in the next couple of years. So this, for example, the special gender advisor for our listeners, is is this person based in, in The Hague or, or how exactly, you know, just on a sort of a concrete level, how does this work? If you get a new prosecutor, would you get a new special gender advisor? I mean, how, how do these two work together? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, no, the, the current special advisor on gender to the prosecutor is Miss Patty Sellers. Uh, she's based in Brussels, but in these current Corona times, uh, everything is online anyway. Based at home. Uh, exactly, as we all are. And so what happens is that um, when the prosecutor seeks advice on a particular policy development or substantive expertise or experience on a particular matter, uh, she contacts her special advisor who then gives that advice. And a very important part of that role as well is being almost a face, if you will, to the issue. So you see Ms. Sellers in, in many panel discussions, in many trainings, and that is a crucially important role, really. Um, now, I need in a couple of months, we will have a new prosecutor come in. We very much hope, but believe as well, that the position of the special advisor on gender, which is, I must say, an independent position, it is not integrated in the ICC, will remain. Yeah, so that, that brings us to the next question that indeed, at the moment, as you mentioned, Ms. Fatou Bensouda, if, if I'm saying that correctly, she is the current prosecutor of the ICC. And as you say, she's done a lot to further gender justice during, during her time with the ICC. But in June of this year, a British barrister, Mr. Karim Khan, will start what is a nine-year term as the new prosecutor. What are your hopes for, for, for this new position? What would you like to see Mr. Khan do next with regards to gender justice? Um, well, quite a bit, really. Uh, we, we welcome his, his appointment. Uh, we know that he has experience on the topic and, and perhaps even more importantly, a real will and, and a heart to continue advancing the, these issues. So we hope that he will move forward the legacy of, of Fatou Ben Souda in almost trailblazing, if you will, in international criminal law, uh, so many of the issues that still need to be tackled. And what I mean by that is to have first prosecutions on certain topics of sexual and gender-based violence, leading to first decisions by an international criminal court. So first jurisprudence, if you will. So I mean, could you give us a concrete example? Yes, well, just very, very recently, the ICC took a decision on forced marriage, and that was the very first time um, that that happened in international criminal law. So that was very welcome indeed. What we're hoping to see in the near future as well, near, it can take a couple of years, but to have a decision by judges, because that is so important, because a decision by judges is then looked to in other ICL and other international criminal law tribunals, but also at the national level, to better understand, to better define, if you will, when we're talking about sexual violence, what does sexual mean exactly? And it would be extremely helpful to have that better explained in a court decision. It, it almost sounds like what you're looking for is president. 
That's exactly what it is. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly what it is. Because again, the ICC, you need to see it as a sort of catalyst. It, it cannot tackle every conflict in the world and it cannot bring justice and accountability uh, for every survivor of mass atrocities in the world. What it is, is really sort of a, a catalyst of precedent where, where you go to to see what next steps are in the understanding of a number of crimes, how to hold the perpetrators accountable. And that has always been the role and the idea behind the ICC, that it goes against only the most responsible possible alleged perpetrators, and that the rest, if you will, are tried by national courts. So precedent is absolutely crucial in this respect. Do you find that the national courts in various member countries, do they follow this, the precedent of, of the ICC or do, does there seem to be a, a clear line of influence between the two? A clear line of influence, I wouldn't dare say. And we're talking also about more than 120 countries that are member of the ICC. So it varies quite greatly, but we do see a very positive impact on sometimes even uh, not necessarily national judges or regional judges following the president of the ICC, but also the development of legislation. So we see parliamentarians, for example, picking up or working with the ICC on a number of these issues and then pushing forward legislation. We see it at the UN level, for example, in the development of, of other treaties, such as recently the Treaty on Crimes Against Humanity. The two, it, it all influences one another. And so advances made at the ICC really catalyze advances in discussions, in initiatives uh, in so many other realms as well. Yeah, what, what puts a smile on my face, despite the, the difficult topic, is your optimism and your energy to say, well, I feel <laughs> no. that... Like if just if we can make a change here, it may lead to a change there and that might lead to a change there and become a catalyst for, for further change. I, I think it is very nicely when we, we first met you as well, we spoke about the, the size of this issue and the size of, of sort of the problem that you're tackling. And I think that's why it's important to ask you as well is, is what do you hope on a uh, perhaps a more realistic or an achievable scale? What do you hope to see that gets changed in the coming decades or in, in the short term? Yeah, uh, <laughs> being realistic is sometimes a little bit difficult indeed when your hopes and aspirations are so big. Um, but what, what I then try to do and, and my call then is to, to really bring it back to almost an individual level. Again, we touched upon it already. When you're talking about sexual violence, when you're talking about gender-based violence, it is so personal almost. And that is true for practitioners as well. And with practitioners, I mean myself, colleague NGOs, journalists, academics, prosecutors, investigators, judges, etc. It is a topic where you feel like you have a sort of an instinctive understanding of, but that's not necessarily the case. And so my one appeal is really get educated. Don't, don't fear that because uh, you think, well, gender, yes, gender is important, gender equality, uh, that, that you know, and, and sort of a measure of honesty with oneself in saying, I, I might need a little bit more understanding. I might need to reach out to experts. I might need to take an online course to understand what is gender exactly, or what is sexual violence exactly? What can that look like? And always, always, always have in the back of your mind, talk to survivors. They are the ones who can tell us what is important to them, because at the end of the day, this, we're, we're all doing this all for them, really. I'm, I'm just thinking, Alex, yeah, the issue of gender, it's, well, as you said, the ICC is dealing with very 
huge and often horrific gender crimes. So I don't, I don't think for people perhaps living in The Hague or, or somewhere else in the world where, where these things are not so, so common can seem far removed. But I don't think that discussions about gender are so far removed because gender is part of, of all of our lives. And I'm just thinking about sort of conversations around gender because they're always there, but perhaps they could be made a little bit more explicit or perhaps we could have a few more. Because as I said, this recent issue with, with Turkey and the, and the Istanbul Convention, I think that highlighted for everyone that there are large segments of the population that have one idea about gender and other parts of the population, this is even within Europe, that have different ideas about gender. And if we start just to have these conversations about what gender means to you, because I also think there's a lot of people who've never even really examined their own ideas about gender. They've just absorbed them and just carried on. Yeah, that, that's very true. I can only really completely and wholeheartedly agree with uh, with you. Uh, gender issues, but sexual violence issues as well, are part of all of our cultures, all of our uh, surroundings, whether we see it or not. And that is something to really understand as well, that in any society, including our own, including here in The Hague, there are a number of very deep-rooted issues that really facilitate, if you will, gender violence, sexual violence as well, um, be it at the domestic level. Um, and that happens even in The Hague on a, on a day-to-day basis, unfortunately. And really trying to, and, and again, that, that goes back to what, what you were saying, to t- taking almost an individual responsibility, try to question indeed what what are my views on this what do i see around me how do i participate almost in the dynamic that again facilitates a, a society where this is I, I i don't dare say accepted mm. uh, but almost because it is around the corner of of all of us really happening yeah i i think um that there's still so much more to talk about and you're incredibly well informed about the subject. And I think that's why it's such a pleasure for us as well to, through this manner, get a bit more informed on the topic. And I hope that the listeners feel the same way, that this could be a starting point or a a catalyst, as you use the word so nicely, for for change, perhaps on a smaller individual level and to have those conversations. And thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you to the both of you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Alex. And if if people want to know more about this Obviously, I know you have a, the Gender Justice website, and I guess they could look also at the ICC website. Are yes. there any other places that they can find more information? Yes, absolutely. The UN has a, a segment uh, called UN Women that has a great deal of fantastic resources from uh, very short online courses to videos, for example, to just um, a list of books that you might be able to, to read. So there's, a, there's plenty out there to, uh, to read up on. Well, thank you to our listeners for joining us again today on Stalk Talk. Stay tuned for another episode at the same time next week. And of course, you know that you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Anchor, and now also YouTube. Uh, So watch out for our YouTube channel where we will upload this uh, video very shortly.